Hello and welcome to the Herbicane Podcast. My name is Simon Osmo and I'm a former UK police detective turned entrepreneur and mindset coach. And on this podcast, I talk with impactful individuals from around the world who have navigated a life pivot, found themselves for a self-discovery to find that thing that we've all been looking for, a happy and fulfilled life. So the excuses are over, my friend. It's time to change our thinking so that we can change our lives and come join me as we dive into this week's conversation to learn how they became, who they became. So I want to start there. So one of the things that you say is... You said, where are all the LGBTQ... It's a mouthful for me even to say this, Mark. Where is the LGBTQ plus figures in history? So so what inspired you to want to discover where the sort of the, the history figures were that might be within the sort of uh, the gay and lesbian community? Yeah, so it's a very good question to ask because it has been absolutely a journey of discovery. So I want to take you back to when I was 15 years old and I was growing up in North London, the son of Irish immigrants, at a time when being Irish was very unpopular in the UK. The IRA were absolutely you know, in their heyday, bombing London, bombing Birmingham. And so to be an Irish immigrant, you were absolutely open to discrimination. So we were very quiet Irish. We didn't celebrate St. Patrick's Day. We didn't, you know, I didn't learn Irish, didn't learn Gaelic. I didn't go to Irish dancing. I didn't engage with any of the Irish community or my heritage. So when at school, I learned about Lord Castlereagh and understood that he was involved in the Acts of Union in Ireland, my ear sort of pricked up at last, finally, a piece of Irish history. He was incredibly powerful. He was an aristocrat, had a huge estate. He was a minister for the crown. He was involved, as I said, in the Acts of Union for Ireland. He was involved in the defeat of Napoleon and he committed suicide. And I remember my tutor at school saying something about horrid man. I just glossed over that and carried on to the next you know, historical item. And it always struck me knowing all of that about him. And he was really good looking thinking, why did he commit suicide? And it was only recently that I discovered that he was gay, that he was being blackmailed, that he took his blackmail letter to the king and he resigned his position. And four days later at home, he committed suicide. Now, I thought to myself, if that 15-year-old troubled boy growing up in North London had seen a member of his LGBTQ plus ancestry, I might have felt a little bit more at ease with myself. I might have understood that I came from a long line of women and men who shaped the world and created history. And I wasn't something to be ashamed of. I wasn't something to be hidden away or something that was going to go to hell. So really that started my kind of interest in are there other people within history who are LGBTQ, who we don't know about. But the struggle is, and I talk about this a lot on the Gay Aristo on my Instagram or on YouTube, LGBTQ plus history is hidden because it was forbidden. So if you want to look up, you know, a king or a queen or or a historical figure, there's documentary evidence. You can read diaries about their lives, often with gay people because of legal discrimination at the time, or because their ancestors destroyed a lot of evidence about their life to protect their reputation. We have to peer into history. We have to join the dots, things that aren't necessarily as clear as there might be for a straight person. 
And that means we're often having the burden of proof that someone's a member of the LGBTQ plus community is higher. And also you're much more open to accusation that you're just making something up. But, you know, queers have been here for years and I'm on a mission with the Gay Aristo to shine a loving light on the LGBTQ plus history. Because I don't want any 15 year old boy or girl to feel like I did and to have the opportunity to have their history represented to them and have that missed opportunity. And it's interesting that you, I don't know if you would use the word suppressed, I don't know, or, or hidden, but but it's interesting that you, you found this, there was a sort of this secrecy that, you know, certain parts of the community were, were pushed into corner, which is really what was, you know, I mean, the most prominent one now is like a sort of the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly here in the US where I am, that, you know, a lot of the slavery, a lot of um, black rights were suppressed, but we're really hearing from you that it's not just one ethnicity. These are also groups of individuals that have been historically and systemically discriminated against by society or by the, the sort of the lords and kings of the time, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the history of the LGBT, the history as it stands, most of the history of LGBTQ plus people is a history of criminology and of prosecution. So, you know, I'm doing a PhD at the moment on the country house of a re- as a refuge for LGBTQ plus people. And I'm reading lots of 18th century legal cases where people were, you know, brought into court for committing homosexual acts and were hung, were put into stocks, were murdered, were imprisoned. So a lot of our history is about being taken to court. Lord Montague in the 1950s in the UK, yes. a peer of the realm, was taken to court for homosexual acts and imprisoned for a year. So there's that side of history, the slightly, you know, we are criminals. But actually the everyday history of people and the lives that they led if they were part of the LGBTQ plus community has been edited out of existence. Some of that, I believe, is deliberate because A, you couldn't really, or it was very difficult historically to live openly as an LGBTQ plus person. You were open to legal discrimination, persecution, social ruin. So actually you couldn't live your true authentic life. You couldn't share who you are. So it isn't really recorded. Secondly, where there was records, where there were private letters between you know, lovers or very close companions, Often what ancestors did is they redacted or destroyed those letters. So Georgina, the Duchess of Devonshire, made famous in the fantastic film, The Duchess, you know, she had a a three-way relationship with Lady Elizabeth Foster, Bess, her best friend, and her husband, the Duke, and her. They lived together as a throuple in Chatsworth House in Derbyshire. They lived together in Devonshire House in London. And there is some evidence that there is a sexual relationship between her and Lady Elizabeth or Bess. However, most of the correspondence between them have massive black lines through them. Anything that gets close to hinting towards a sexual relationship is edited out or has been destroyed. So it's deliberately been edited out of history. And it's interesting you say, I mean, as we kind of approach the the King's coronation, and we mentioned this before we came on live, and then sort of uh, the stories and the speculation going around with sort of Harry and sort of Meghan and stuff, you know, when did someone in the royal family ask about the ethnicity of the the child? You know, 
who knows? But it's it's always interesting when I hear about history, particularly around royalty. But there is, but there's an element of lifting up the carpet, isn't there, and, and pushing yeah. stuff under the rug and praying that it never comes to the sort of the forefront. Yeah, well, we none of us want our full dirty laundry, you know, shown in public. That's the first thing. One thing yeah. I would say, I think this current monarch and the royal family as they currently exist are very supportive of the LGBTQ plus community. Don't forget Prince oh. William and Prince Harry are the sons of Diana, Princess of Wales, who in the 1980s, when there was a lot of anti-gay discrimination in the UK on the back of AIDS, was one of the first people in public to shake hands with an AIDS patient. Her sister-in-law, Princess Margaret, was an early patron and trustee of the Terence Higgins Trust, which was AIDS research, and would quietly go and visit and support those people. So Harry and William come from a background of LGBTQ plus support. William, even this week, when Uganda has passed anti-LGBTQ plus legislation, where it is effectively life imprisonment for being gay in Uganda now, last night, Prince William, on a visit to Poland, went out for dinner to an LGBTQ plus restaurant in Poland. He shows himself as a complete ally. He's very relaxed. But also, Uganda is part of the Commonwealth, and I wonder whether or not he is sending a subliminal message or a subtle message that they that he is an ally. And certainly, I've had some dealings with the royal family myself. I'm a fellow at Windsor Castle in St. George's House at Windsor Castle, and I have only, and I've met members of the royal family with my husband. I have only ever been welcomed and supported and never met, never felt like an outsider. But you're right, there is a lot of gay kings and queens in history and they're fascinating once you start to lift the carpet go behind the curtains to actually find out that there were more queens sitting on the british throne than you might have thought exactly yeah yeah it's fascinating and that's something i think i saw this on could have been on your youtube mark where i saw this and actually no it's on your linkedin because i'm a former detective you know that so i do my homework but but you you said on a linkedin post you said there was an article and it was only dated within the last five six weeks so that many people still hide their sexuality fear of discrimination and i was surprised i don't want to date this podcast by saying what year it's in so i'm not going to say the year but i was surprised that in today's society where there is so much openness about sexuality that people still feel that if I tell my manager that I'm gay or if I have any suggestion that I'm gay, I'm going to be discriminated against. I mean, for, for me, I, I find that quite hard to believe in today's world, but that was obviously the data from that mm. um, report. Tell us yeah, a little bit about, um, about posts. Lots, lots of LGBTQ plus owned uh, business owners aren't able or feel comfortable coming out as who they are. And I know I run, I run a small business. I have done so for 12 years as an innovation consultancy. We work with some of the most famous brands in the world. I won't mention them here, both in the US and the UK and across Europe. But when I started the business, <clears throat> when my husband joined the business, we were concerned, partly because my husband is 18 years younger than me. We were concerned that people would you know, not see him as necessarily an equal part in the business, an equal part that he only got the job because he's the CEO's boyfriend, or questions about that. Also, some of the, you know, big businesses are often very conservative with a small and with a capital C. And they might talk about LGBTQ plus rights as part of their marketing campaign, but run by old white middle-aged men it's perhaps as a challenge to, or they feel it's a challenge to their authority and their status and their position in the world. If someone's coming in from a different kind mm -hmm. of community, it just 
it might raise questions that they don't want to have raised when they're focusing on something in the boardroom. And certainly, whilst I've never felt and I've never had any direct discrimination against being gay, certainly the way I talk, I've had discrimination against the way I talk. I think I I told you previous to the the time we were recording today that I'm a son of Irish immigrants. My father and mother both came to the United Kingdom from very humble backgrounds in Ireland. My father came here with one pound fifty. This accent is bought by my father cashing in his pension for the last, so I could go to a private school for the last two years of of my education, the same school that Hugh Grant went to. But people then, because I talk in this particular way, say, oh gosh, he's a posho, therefore he must be this, he must have that view, he must have that belief. And I know that sometimes I haven't got work, not because I wasn't the best person to do it, or we didn't have the best pitch, but simply because I sounded a bit too posh. Now, there was one time in America, just thinking through actually, where I did get discriminated against. We went for a P- I went with a different organization for a piece of work for a company in the Midwest. They loved the pitch and they told my boss that I was a bit too flamboyant for a Midwest audience and could they switch me out? And then we had the job. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that wasn't Minnesota where I am in the, in the Midwest, but there are say where it was because it'd be easily identifiable yes yeah shocking and also i i was there with a very good friend of mine a colleague her parents had immigrated to the uk from india and they also said she was a little bit ethnic could they find yeah. someone who wasn't quite so ethnic i mean just i mean that can you just stop that was only 2008 i mean how shocking and disgraceful is that and when i've lived in america i've lived in dallas i've lived in new york i've worked for some huge you know, American-owned brands. I've never felt that discrimination. I don't think, from my experience, it sums up America to me. And I hope to goodness that it isn't what America stands for, which is around freedom and authenticity and freedom to be who you are, because that's the principles on which I believe it was founded. And it's really difficult. I mean, I know from my dear mother, who's 81 years old back in England, that I know there was some controversy where it could have been one of the Queen's assistants, maybe, had asked someone of colour back in the UK as to where, where the person was from. Mm-hmm. And they sort of said, she didn't know, where are you really from? And what she was trying to get from was, you know, where's your, where's your ethnicity? Where's your background from? And I think this, this woman was impelled to task. And I think it is a thin line because sometimes people have asked me, sort of said, where are you from? And I'll say, oh, I'm English. And then they might ask a follow-up question. And what I what I know they're trying to get towards is, well, what's, what's your heritage? And I say, well, my father's Nigerian and my, my mum's English. And I don't always take offence of that. But yeah. it, it is a thin line, isn't it? It is that thin line between overstepping, I think, from the story I heard of this lady back in England who was elderly in generation and said to someone, where are you from? She's trying to get to, well, where's her ancestry from? It's a thin line between us becoming too woke and sort of, you know, understanding when someone's truly trying to be sort of discriminated against. It's, you can cause you to walk around on tip of toes a little bit, Mock. But I think there's also, I know who you're referring to, it's Lady Susan Hussey, who actually is the godmother to Prince William. And she was one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting and unpaid. I knew you'd know it. I knew you'd know it. And so it was <laughs> an event at Buckingham Palace hosted by the Queen Consort, Camilla. I have also met, has been extremely charming to me. She held an event which was to highlight domestic abuse and Sister Space, this charity, went along as they do a lot of work with people from the black community around domestic violence. And Lady Susan Hussey asked this individual, where are you from? And she said, I think from Hackney. 
where are you from? I'm from sister space. And it kind of got deep, you know, she kept asking, where are you from? Now, I think Lady Susan Hussey gave her life of service to the monarch and was continuing to support support the royal household in her for the queen consort. So I don't know, I don't believe, and I'd like not to believe that Lady Susan Hussey was in any way trying to cause offence. However, my husband runs a belonging training, helping people to understand and navigate things like pronouns, pronouns, making people feel comfortable, welcomed and accepted. And I think in the 21st century, if you are in a public role and you are interfacing with people from diverse backgrounds, then you have a responsibility to understand that language is important, that your tone of voice and and those sorts of things are also important, and to educate yourself so that you don't cause offence or make someone feel that they are not included. You know, it's wonderful that Buckingham Palace was opened up to talk about domestic abuse, was opened up to talk to charities, was opened up to talk to a charity that was particularly dealing with people of colour. So all the signals and the good intention were there. But it was just, you know, it, the actual delivery of it let it down. Yeah, and it's funny because even my, I mean, my wife, you know, so my my dad is black, my mum is white, so I'm I'm sort of like a, you know, I'm a milky, milky kind of, and my wife is now white, and then my two sons are very, are very some sort of light. And I can remember my my son, my wife took my sons to a doctor one time here in the US. And the doctor was telling her off saying, well, I hope you'll put a sunscreen on these kids because they're looking brown and a little bit burnt. And she said, well, actually, my husband's black. That's the reason why. You know, when my wife told me that, we had a bit of a laugh and a joke about that. But I mean, that was going back four or five years. If someone said that now, that doctor would mostly be frog marched out the door and say, you know, but again, I think it's hard, isn't it? Because sometimes it can be said with intentions or good intentions, harmful intentions. And I remember with me being in Minnesota in Minneapolis when the George Floyd riots were, were going on. And then I heard back in the UK that people are trying to pull down Winston Churchill statues for all that he stood for. Even me as a black man, I was defending him saying, you know, this man was born in like 1858, whatever it was. And the generation, you know, he was, I mean, he fought for the, the human rights of other individuals. You know, what was he a racist? But what was it of that time? You know, but I think there's also snapshots of, history and time isn't there but you've got to you've got to acknowledge and, and respect you have to put people in their historical context correct absolutely. correct you know as someone who you know is of irish heritage i consider myself both british and irish i i have dual nationality however a lot of the people that i discussed like james the first of you know of england who was james the sixth of scotland did terrible things in ireland castlereagh you know did awful things in ireland to the irish people they are people who attacked my people historically. However, I try and see them in context. And I think it's even more an invitation now to understand things like the impact of colonialism, the impact of empire, the impact of society's attitudes at the time on individuals, whether they were peasants in Ireland, whether they were slaves in the colonies or part of the empire. Have an open discussion about it and also say, what can we learn about this around being more tolerant and accepting of diversity today? I don't believe that we should wash away or hide our past. And certainly, you know, the, the gay aristo will tackle people who, you know, might be seen as very negative. And I often get a lot of quotes, say, comments from people saying, how can you talk about that person? He did such horrors or she did dreadful things over here. Queen Christina of Sweden, the rock star lesbian queen, was very involved in slavery. Yes, she was. She was a slave owner 
and she was a lesbian. Let's have a conversation about both those things and let's put her in context. Yeah, and I want to move on to assumptions now because we touched on it a little bit and there's assumptions that people make about me and I, I know talking to you before the interview, there's assumptions that people make about you and I know it's it's easy when you're, you know, you, you come across as intelligent and, and you are intelligent. You know, you're very articulate in how you talk, but you said like you, you're raised from immigrant Irish yep. sort of parents. What was it like sort of growing up to then making this transition? Because now for my American listeners, you live in like a sort of a, a castle in Wales, you know, so it's very, you know, people might look at you and say, well, well look, he's had it easy. You know, right? Even, you know yeah. he's, he's, everything's been given to him. He lives in this castle. He's got a successful business. How have you sort of found people making assumptions about your life and how do you tackle that? Yeah, so people, you're right. People do make assumptions. They look at me and they say, they hear how I speak and they make certain assumptions about my political beliefs or who I will or won't support. I live in a castle, so they make, I've got a title, I'm the Lord of Glenbark. So they've got all these kind of, that says more about them than it does about me, if I'm honest. So that's quite interesting. The second thing, yes, both my parents came to the United Kingdom as migrants, as economic migrants. Very interesting, the debate going on in the UK at the moment about migration. Um, again, a lot of people who talk like me and look like me might be quite so pro-migration as I am. But my mother always said, you can climb up the ladder, but don't put it up behind you. And that's something that's really remained with me my entire life. My parents were discriminated against when they first came here. My father remembered the first six nights he came to the United Kingdom. He arrived in London and he no one would give him anywhere to sleep. He couldn't get any boarding. Literally, there were notices up in the window saying, no, I'm going to use a word that's unacceptable today. I hope that's all right. No coloreds, no coloreds, no dogs, no Irish. We were below the dogs as far as they were concerned. So what? And my mother had the same thing when she came over and trained to be a nurse. She talked to me about one of her patients smacking her across the face one day and saying, get back to the pigs in your kitchen. You know, the assumptions that people made about Irish people and the discrimination was quite horrendous. Certainly, what that drove my parents to do was to be incredibly hardworking, to focus on education, to always say, we will advance. My parents were what I call onwards people. They said, it doesn't really matter what other people say about you. It's just important that you live who you are and you know who you are and that you continue to advance. And because they came here with nothing, they invested in our education. They lived a quiet life. We didn't get involved, as I said, with any of the Irish community. We didn't discuss Irish history. My mother was born on St. Patrick's Day, the patron saint of Ireland. Her name was Patricia. We didn't celebrate her birthday in our house because my parents were concerned that the neighbors would think we were IRA revolutionaries. So I grew up in a house that was quietly Irish, but at the same time, really focused on, they would have called it, my parents would call it assimilate. I remember once when I lived in New York, my mother came from the North of Ireland. She had quite a thick North of Ireland accent, but she learned over time to change that accent so that she could pass and be more accepted. I remember once she ran me in New York and it came through to reception and the receptionist, Megan, who's a great friend of mine now and lives in Connecticut, put the call through and said, I think the queen is on the phone for you. My mother had a oh, all the mannerisms of being British. And you know, it's interesting. I could, where I am now, a castle, 
a lord, you know, good financial situation through hard work. I've actually lost, I've lost my house. I've lived on 20 pounds a week. I've just kept on working hard, the, the immigrant mentality. I could quite easily and conveniently forget my heritage. I could lose the O. I could not talk about my parents being immigrants here. I would pass as an upper middle class English person. But I refuse to do that because I'm not ashamed. I'm very proud of my heritage and I think it's helped me become the person who I am today. And I've worked most of my life in education, in development, in learning and development. And because I, I help people in that role achieve their full potential, I think actually being the son of immigrants to the United Kingdom has driven me to do that work about realizing potential as opposed to some people I meet who, you know, they might be Lord this or Lady this is son or the Honourable so-and-so and live in a gorgeous farm somewhere, but they're living on the fumes of their grandfather's money and they have little incentive to really push themselves forward in life. And I know which situation I would rather be placed in. I know what you said because I'm a great believer of that as well. You know, I think adversity is a great gift, you know, and I was raised in very humble belongings and you know was a police officer in england so wasn't making a great deal of money and when i came to america and reinvented myself i found a lot of success you know i'm very i'm blessed to live on mock i live on a, a golf course for you know for crying out loud you know yeah you know, so so we, we live in very comfortable um settings here my wife will sometimes say i'll say to about you know all these middle class or these upper class and she says simon she says you realize you know that's you why are you so anti i said no 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 I'm still Simon from the council estate in Reading. And I'm never going to forget who I am. You know, I might have possessions, I might have money and things, but I'm still, you know, a boy from a council estate in Reading. And I'm never going to forget that. And I think you're right. Your adversity can be your greatest gift if you could harness it in the right way. I lost everything in 2008. I came back from living in New York where I had, you know, a very successful life. I was living in Manhattan. I was running part of an agency out there in Tribeca flying all over the world, thought I was the bee's knees. I had a muse house in South Kensington, fabulous job, and I lost it all. I lost my job at the beginning of the recession. My brother then died from cancer. I suddenly had three children, which I was responsible for, along with my sister-in-law. My father died the day after the funeral. My oh, mother wow. then lost mental capacity and died 14 months later. I had lost my home, so I had no money. I was living on 20 pounds a week no home. I bought my first property at 23 and at 40, I had lost everything. I had no job, no family. And I had to really, and suddenly the responsibility for these three amazing girls now, they are the most important people in my life. But what, again, I could have sat and let it destroy me. But I think, again, seeing my parents working so hard, counting the pennies, making sure that they could meet the bills, that they could you know, focus on our education. It drove me not to give in and wrap that cloak of darkness and blackness around myself, but instead say, okay, everything's fallen apart. I have the opportunity to reinvent myself. Who do I want to be? And I'm doing that again with the Gay Arista. I've had a successful career in, in innovation and management consultancy. I've been an HR director. I've worked all over the world. But now with the Gay Aristo, I'm saying, what's the next chapter in my life? How can I bring my curiosity into a new sphere and what's the next chapter of my life going to look and is that something you're going through such great adversities as you, as you did there is that something that 
you found the inner strength or was that something that you sort of sought outwardly support to do what what allowed you to overcome such great adversity of you know your brother dying parents dying you know how, how could you do that so i think firstly my parents were amazing role models they worked hard my father worked monday to friday in his day job he then worked saturday in a butcher's shop which he ended up owning and then on sundays he worked in the allotment so I saw that hard work pays off. So that was the first thing. If you don't work hard, if you don't do the graft yourself, you won't get the rewards. So I knew that if I didn't get off my butt and get into work and create some sort of employment for myself, no one was going to give it to me. That's the one thing. The second also, I do have a faith. I was raised a Catholic. I'm now part of the Anglican faith in the church, a church of Wales. Again, a very welcoming church, a small village church here very accepting of my husband and I. I read in church, I serve coffee in church, I've had no discrimination there. But my faith allows me to believe that there is more than this world and that my family, I'll see them again, and that my family are there supporting and guiding me. So those two things, hard work and a faith. And I do remember I stared at myself in the mirror. I remember sitting down on the sofa one day and honestly physically starting to collapse. I was like, I'm going to lose the house. I don't know how I'm going to pay the mortgage. I, I can't turn the electricity on. I, I didn't have enough money to buy dog food, so I had to give my dogs toast. I was really just at the end of my tether. And I started to physically sort of collapse into myself. And I, I stood up and I went to the mirror and I pointed at myself and I said, no, you are Mock O'Keefe. You are Philip and Patricia's O'Keefe's son. You are more than this. You come from a family of fighters. You will fight this and you must win. I literally gave myself that pep talk. And I do something even to this day. I find things to be grateful for, really small things. So I remember writing lists when, when the world was going southwards for me. And I remember one day trying to write a gratitude list and finding it really hard. And I wrote, I'm grateful for my radiators. That's all I could find in my day. That, uh, that was positive. But I found one thing that was positive and all this negativity was swirling around me. I'm grateful for my radiators. And this is a boy, I remember I woke up one night, one morning, and I went into the sitting room of my house in South Kensington, London. And I had written on the wall in my sleep that night with a massive felt tip pen, I just want my life back. I don't remember doing it. I then obviously went back to bed. So I was really stuck and I started to employ tools and techniques like that to discover the new life and the new opportunity, which again is what I'm doing now. Having this podcast with you, I don't know how many people will will listen to me on here and then decide to follow a me lot. on you. A lot, yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping to write a book. I'm hoping to really become the voice of LGBTQ plus history to create. I think nobody is going, certainly at the moment, nobody is going to create the life or the best life that you can have for yourself. And one of my concerns about social media, much as I love it, and I've made lots of friends on there and have a real community of people that I talk to every day, a lot in the United States. I love waking up to messages from my friends in the United States. It seems very immediate. You know, you can, you look at someone's amazing lifestyle and think, oh, I want that. And they have a video about how they did it so easily. And they have a passive income of $15,000 a month actually hard work showing up and doing it consistently with a purpose with a passion so i'm passionate 
about telling LGBTQ plus history. In my career before now, I was passionate about helping people achieve their full potential. If you have a passion, you show up consistently and work hard, I believe you can create the best possible life for yourself. So there's a lot of stuff that you said that it resonates with me. And I was thinking of a time when I took my son recently to one of his soccer practices and there was this homeless person with their shopping cart and their life in there. Me and my son, he's nine years old, we're talking to this woman. And it's very easy when we talk about privilege in the world, but we're all privileged to a degree. You know, we're highly privileged over that person's circumstance. And you know, it's just, there's just a lot right now as to how we live our lives. And then people do forget our personal journeys. I mean, like both me and you have mentioned, very humble backgrounds. It's very easy to make assumptions about our life. And I think another subject I wanted to move on to was, Mark, I think I read it somewhere where you said about we live in disruptive times. And what, what, what would you mean by sort of disruptive times? Because there is a lot of, there's a lot of race and reconciliation. There's a lot of equal rights. There is a lot of disruption in society. I'd love to get what your sort of meaning was when you say we live in disruptive times. That probably comes in from my side as the innovator, and I wrote a book a couple of years ago, The Innovation Ecosystem, that looks at creating you know, innovation culture in your organization. But I think now more than ever, technology is and has the potential to disrupt the way we live. I was just talking with my husband this morning about chat GPT. Yeah. So this enhanced AI technology where I, I'm currently writing a, I'm writing a book which is on 25 LGBTQ plus icons you don't know about, but probably should. And I've got to put this proposal together for my agent, who's going to be touting it around the UK and the USA over the next few months. Now, I've been doing work over the last few weeks, you know, researching, looking up people's history, who, you know, from the history of America, you know, what can we find out about Hamilton? What can we find out about George Washington, et cetera, et cetera. This morning on Chat GPT, I just wrote, who are the famous LGBTQ plus Americans? Boom, boom, boom. Names, 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 history, 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 history. I typed in, are there any gay kings and queens in England? Were there any gay queens? Boom, 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 boom. So that made me think, you know, what is my role then as a historian if you can just access the information as easily as that? Is it going to disrupt the career that I'm only starting to get off the ground now? And what I started to think is actually that technology has existed for years through Google and then through Wikipedia. And it's about the value that I will bring in terms of an interpretation, in terms of the energy behind those stories. So I kind of, whilst I'm slightly terrified, I'm also quite excited about the opportunities with chat GPT. But I talk to my nieces at the moment, you know, one of them is 16. She's just doing her GCSEs over here before she does her more senior qualifications and then maybe goes on to university. The other two are, you know, in their early teens and they're choosing their subjects now. And they talk about wanting to be a barrister or an architect. And I have to have the conversation with them to say, I don't know if those careers are going to exist in the future. I think it's really important for you to do a subject at higher education if you choose to go into higher education that you are passionate about, that you love, that develops your communication skills, that develops your verbal reasoning, that allows you to deal with complexity and polarity because those skills will always be needed in the world. Actually, whether a barrister, a lawyer, an architect exists in the same form in eight, nine years when they're going into employment, 
I can't be sure. So I so that that's how I think it's going to disrupt. It's going to disrupt our careers. And certainly things like the Industrial Revolution, which did away with so many jobs, mining jobs, so many different jobs in the UK, changed and were replaced. I think these new advances with AI and technology are already beginning to do away with jobs. And we've all kind of heard the debate around the fact they will impact on blue-collar workers the way Taylorism did in the Industrial Revolution. I think it will hit much more white-collar workers as well. That's a great disruption to mention. And my eldest son, who's 12 years old, and no came home. My wife does all that type of stuff. I, I just won't know my son's teacher's names. My, my wife does does all that. But a note came home from the school and saying, you know, the school has banned chat GPT and it can't be used in schoolwork. And my, my 12-year-old, he didn't even know what it was. He spends a lot of time on YouTube, plays Fortnite, all this type of stuff, but didn't know what it was. And it was great because it gave me a teaching opportunity. And said, I said, Maxwell, I said, in school, ChatGPT is considered cheating. I said, in business, ChatGPT is leverage, and here's the difference. And it gave me an opportunity to teach him that you need to leverage ChatGPT because if you don't right now, you're going to be left behind. So you are right. ChatGPT and AI is very disruptive right now, and it may eliminate a lot of roles that aren't necessarily required. But it's really interesting how, you know, one part of society, as in the education system, sees it as cheating. And like I said, in business, chat GPT is nothing more than, than leverage. You know, writing blog articles, what used to take me two or three hours to write an article, I can now do within 15, 20 minutes, you helping chat GPT to do the research and stuff. Yeah, fascinating. Well, as we start to wrap up our time, I, I knew coming into this interview, I said to my wife, this is going to be a fascinating conversation and you haven't disappointed me. I could just tell when I was doing my research. So I want to give you an opportunity to really talk about the gay Aristo then as to what you're doing there and how people can get involved and, and where, where best to find you. So tell us a little bit about our project. Yeah, absolutely. So all my life, I've loved history um, and great estates. As a child, my parents would take me with their heritage card, the National Trust card around these fine country houses. But I never saw myself as a gay man in any way represented in them. And when I started to do my PhD a couple of years ago, I thought I'd write about cushions or fireplaces or Robert Adams ceilings or something like that. But I realized there's a whole hidden and forbidden history of LGBTQ plus people in these great estates. And it got me thinking about, can I reveal this hidden history? So the Gay Aristo on YouTube and Instagram is all about shining a loving light on what I call our LGBTQ plus ancestors. And really for thousands of years, LGBTQ plus people have had their existence edited out history. And now is the time I believe to bring their loves and their lives fully into the light so we can learn lessons from them. We can have conversations around diversity, around tolerance, and hopefully my wish with the YouTube and the Instagram at Gay Aristo is to get to a point where I'm not even talking about gay history, I'm just talking about history because that 15-year-old boy at school who was taught about Lord Castlereagh, it will be mentioned that he was gay and that he had a relationship here and that because of blackmail and gay shame, he committed suicide. And we will then move on. It won't need a separate lesson on gay history. Mm. Yeah, very, very powerful. And I'll leave your Instagram 
handle and your YouTube within the show notes uh, so people can, can find you. But Mark, it's been a great conversation and maybe post coronation once I've seen it here in America we'll, we'll have to get you back on and have some more conversation because this is fascinating stuff where a little bit some of the listeners might get a little bit twingy in some of the stuff we've spoken about but you've you got to you got to talk about these conversations very very openly I mean this is this is the world that we live in if we're going to be progressive we've got to be prepared to listen to different points of view perhaps have our perspective changed or defend our stance on stuff so yeah yeah I'm always happy with people when pe- I do get quite a lot of negative messages but I'm always happy to engage with someone and have the conversation. I may not necessarily be right. You may not necessarily be right. But let's have a conversation and come together to a place where we both know a bit more about each other. Yeah. And I've had, I've had interviews where people have reached out to me and, and said, oh, well, you didn't ask that question very well or you, you did this. And it'd be very easy for me to say, well, who's that person? They're not the one taking the time out to interview these people and, and do this, this podcast. But I say, well, wh- what can I learn from someone attacking me? Um, if someone's going to choose to send me an email over a podcast episode they've got so worked up about, I said, well, what can I learn from their behavior, which is going to help me to go forward? But Mark, a great conversation. Um, I'd love to stay in contact with you. And yeah, let's try and do a, a part two sometime soon. I'll see you after the coronation. Thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast. To help spread this inspiring story, be sure to share it with your friends, hit the like button, and of course, subscribe to our channel so you won't miss out on any future episodes. We'd also love to hear how this story impacted you. So leave us a comment on whatever platform you're watching us from. To learn more about this episode, our guests, or Simon, head over to simonosimo slash podcast and sign up to receive the latest information delivered straight to your inbox. Once again, thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast.